Yo, what is up, guys? Before we get going, big shout out to our sponsors, Shift Crypto. Go to shiftcrypto.ch and grab yourself a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet, sleek, smooth, sexy, super simple to use, and take your keys off the dog darn, dog darn, god darn exchange <laughs> because it's all about self sovereignty, you being your own bank, and you are your Bitcoin. Believe it or not, you're your, your Bitcoin. You're your own Bitcoin. Because information, if you know that information, it's yours. But don't just trust yourself and your memory. Get it somewhere smart, like a hardware wallet, like the Bitbox O2. So big shout out to them and support for the show. And don't be a moron. Take your coins off the exchange. All right, enjoy the show. You need to embrace capitalism. It is this hope which is the lever of progress. My favorite Fed. To keep one's reactions warm and true. They attack us because we're over there. Is to have found the secret of perpetual youth. Man, you're too pretty to be a libertarian. And perpetual youth is salvation. Salutations, Aztecers and Kin. You're listening to a boy named Sue. That's Mr. Sue to you, a.k.a. Phil Gibson, only on the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast Network. Great to have you guys. And it's a pleasure to have our repeat guest, technically, Ansel Linder. If you aren't aware of him, he is, of course, over at Bitcoin Magazine, and I'll let him do his own plugs. But we're here to talk macro, geopolitics, Davos, Bitcoin, obviously, and just kind of the state of the world and where things are going. So, Ansel, thanks again for meeting with me today. How are you doing, dude? I'm doing well. It's rare to meet someone that wants to talk about Davos and this type of topic. So I'm psyched. Yeah, well, I mean, being in Bitcoin, I think people are, are wise enough to really what's going on. So hopefully uh, I'm like huge, huge Tom Longa fan. Like I'm like top top tier patron. And so just getting in his slack and being just bombarded with all of this, this signal. It's uh, it might be hard for some people to keep up with all this stuff, but over time, just like we were talking off camera before here, like 1% of progress every day, you, it just kind of becomes like repetition and like a, a sixth cent, like, okay, I know like who these players are and what their goals are and how they think they're going to get there. So it's great, man. So you have been doing a little series that you started a couple weeks ago and just kind of deep diving on these global institutions, Davos being one of them. And you also mentioned maybe you're going to hit into the IMF and all these other institutions. But I think it would be important to kind of go over just the basic who Davos is and where they want to see things going and how I believe, because, you know, I subscribe to the Luangan thesis of we have Fed tightening. There's a bifurcation of powers. And there's Team Fed and there's Team Davos. And I know that might be trite to some hearing that, but I mean, we're seeing for once in decades, the Fed successfully tightening monetary policy, making that cheap credit uh, expensive and not very doable for uh, people that have just been so used to sucking off that teat of the state of easy money. And so I thought we would just kind of have a conversation and see you know, how those two forces are going head to head and of course incorporate Bitcoin and where it fits in all of this. So if you want to start with you know, who Davos is and just the bare bones, and we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of Tom Luongo as well. We've had him on FedWatch a couple times there with Bitcoin Magazine, and I've been reading him for a very long time. Um, he, we, we differ in a few things. Like uh, I see Davos as kind of a byproduct of the euro dollar system, and I think he sees Davos more as in control. So I think there, the conditions were just right to let the Davos crowd, which are the kind of global globalist Marxists in the world, that the conditions just were right for them to gain power uh, over most of the international institutions and many of the high positions in governments around the world. And so, but when, when the euro dollar system comes to an end and maybe we have go to a Bitcoin system after that, then uh, I think just naturally the globalists go away. The Davos Davos will go away. So that's kind of how I see it. But I do buy into 
his thesis on the Fed versus the ECB or the Fed versus Davos. Um, I think there is some, uh, I, I don't know if to call it bad blood, but there is a, a, frac a fracture there between them. In the past, the Fed always coordinated what they did with the ECB. And now recently, they haven't been doing that. Also, they tried to get uh, Lael Brainerd to take Powell's position, and she is one of these Davos-friendly people. Um, that was rejected. Uh, also, they tried to get Sarah Bloom Raskin in as the vice chair or the head of supervision at the Fed, and that was rejected. They actually totally discredited her, and that was Loomis that did that, uh, Senator Loomis, in one of the Senate committees that you know kind of vetted these new appointees to the Fed. So one more reason um, to love her. Yeah, one more reason. I mean, I think I think she's real good people, but I kind of I don't I don't like the fact that they aren't going harder driving a wedge between Bitcoin and altcoins. So yeah. But I think anyway. that's just got to be like a slow, gradual like ease into a process. And yeah. I mean, this is somewhat off topic, but still relevant is the the latest like legislation that she and uh, Gillibrand passed. I think it was just like an attempt for them to show before midterms like, hey, well, we Republicans with this new crazy crypto Bitcoin stuff can actually come to some sort of compromise. And so we're going to this is something to be taken seriously. And we're just going to be serious adults and try to work together on this. So I think the strict bifurcation between Bitcoin and crypto and everything else, I think maybe this is Lumis's method of kind of slow rolling, easing them into it, perhaps just a theory. Yeah, yeah, that could be th the case. And also, I mean, this wouldn't happen any almost anywhere else, right? There are places, small countries, you know, small jurisdictions, little tax havens on islands in different places that are friendly to Bitcoin. But you don't see any major, like say G7 country that's as friendly to Bitcoin as the United States. Yeah. So I think that is a very big distinction. And it's in part to this Davos Fed split because I think like uh, Tom Luongo has pointed out, the Fed and Wall Street, they're not really enemies of Bitcoin. They're capitalists yeah. and they want to you know, they will adopt whatever the market wants. And I mean, dang, that is, that's a huge change for me because for years and years, I thought that Wall Street was, you know, kind of corrupt, evil banksters out there that wanted to take over the world and all this stuff. And maybe they were when they were aligned with the globalists, but exactly. at deep down in their hearts, they are capitalists. And so uh, that's where I see kind of this this break between Davos and the Fed. Yeah, it's all about incentives. Like they were all in the global mob. And then yeah. when the hegemony and power that they have over the rest of the world, the whole global monetary system, when that is at threat, because honestly, I think Davos's main goal with leveraging the euro dollar system, which I would love for you to just kind of you know debrief what that is. But with the euro dollar system, that affords... Davos or just you know anyone that can make offshore dollars gives them more quote-unquote money printing and I subscribe to the deflationary thesis just as you but again that gives them the green flag to do more money printing than the Fed can which explains fully yeah. why arguably since June of last year Powell started you know crypto tightening like stealth tightening with the reverse repo market of using increasing the payout by five basis points and so that's another I, I mean again the mob works great until you know you you step on like someone's toe and that's exactly what you're seeing is it's a financial war beyond anything else yeah well with the reverse repo they kind of have to raise it because um you know that goes along with the fed funds rate yeah and so it makes sense to raise the reverse repo rate along with that, as long as well as the IOER, the interest on excess reserves. So that, yes. those are going to be three things that get raised together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the euro dollar system, do you want me to break, go briefly through that? Yeah. Is there any more that you want to just like debrief of like the history of Davos, who it is, and then we can maybe ease into the euro dollar system? Okay. Um, well, da uh, Davos was. It's a meeting by the World Economic Forum, 
and the World Economic Forum started as the European Management Forum, I believe forum, European Management Forum by Klaus Schwab back in 1971 or 1972. And he is a adherent to a very special Marxist that from South America that was all, his name is uh, Kamara, Father Kamara, who is also the uh, kind of um, spiritual leader of Paulo Fieri, who has now become gospel in Western education. And it's kind of the, where a lot of this woke stuff came into education. Uh, and also he was the uh, spiritual father of the Pope, the, the current Pope. And so these, these are three branches of society that uh, were all formed by the teachings of this um, Father Kamara out of South America. And it is a revolutionary Marxist idea. And so when, when you look at the World Economic Forum, you know, they're push, whatever they're pushing, uh, you have to view it in the guise of Marxism and um, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how, how much more you want me to break it down. Uh, that, that's, that's fine. That, that's fantastic. I mean, at the end of the day, they are, are just like Tom says, they're commies. At yeah. the end of the day, they just had different tools of how they want to reach their communism. At the end of the day, they're just, they're just commies. Yeah, I, I love that. He just cuts cuts through cuts to the chase and says, they're commies. And yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I didn't really, probably if you rewind four or five years, I didn't at all understand that they were just Marxists that were hiding everywhere in all high up in all of these institutions. Um, I thought that they were maybe like just corrupt neocons or something like that. But now they I mean, they're that too, but that's just another flavor of the communism. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, that's just a socially, that, that's just designed split. I mean, neocons and uh, progressive Democrats are pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Uh, same, same with the people, the ruling class over there in Europe. Yeah. But anyway, so the Euro dollar system uh, came up similar or same kind of time frame as the World Economic Forum and Davos, but they weren't really connected at the time. The euro dollar system is, I mean, it sounds like euros and dollars, uh, but it's really just a, a term for offshore dollar system and it's bank centered. It's not central bank centered. So all the banks around the world, the way you print dollars is through the process of making a loan. You don't print dollars with QE. You don't print dollars with, um, you know, government spending. You print dollars through the process of making a loan. And the, the U.S. government and the Fed can regulate U.S. banks, but they can't regulate banks in London or banks in Tokyo or banks in Frankfurt or whatever. And so these banks out overseas, they had dollars on their balance sheet and they made dollar denominated loans. And that is printing dollars. So and, by and just to, to cut in real quick, like the origin yeah. of why dollars were there in the first place was because uh, like, there was like a surplus after World War II, right? Which they sent over there to, for like reconstruction after, you know, everything was destroyed, essentially. Well, yeah, that, that would be one source. Um, I don't know exactly. I, I do know that they had uh, subsidiaries. So like JP Morgan or whatever, a U.S. Right. bank would have a subsidiary in the uh, the city of London and they would send them say a million dollars. And now that subsidiary has that million dollars outside of the U S jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And then they just pyramided on that and you can see, well, it really picked up steam in the sixties and seventies. And one of the things about 1971, everybody in Bitcoin should be familiar with that, right. When we went off the gold standard, but really it was almost like necessary because if they're printing all these dollars, say in London, and they want to turn them into gold, right? They want to take these dollars that they just printed and they want to go turn it into gold. Uh, it, it doesn't work, right? The, the US government, the Fed doesn't have control of the amount of dollars. These can be printed all over the world and they were starting to turn them into gold. And so the, the gold would quickly, quickly leave the US, which it was starting to do. So, um, it was almost a necessity to close that gold window because the money was just being printed everywhere else and yeah. we couldn't control it. So anyway, it evolved over the years and over the decades. 
to, you know, involved in all these different financial products with derivatives, uh, getting into the 2000s with credit default swaps and, and all of these, you know, very highly leveraged, highly rehypothecated instruments. Um, and it blew up in 2008. So now instead of just unbridled lending and printing of dollars, now we have a collateral-based system. So collateral is extremely important. And to get a loan, you have to post collateral. So in the, in the old days, maybe like go, going back to like 1990, instead of uh, posting collateral, maybe you could create a credit default swap. So they would take this credit default swap as collateral for their loan. And they could still keep printing money, printing money, printing money. And really this printing all around the world is what built up Japan up to 1990. And then it turned around and built up China from 1990 to 2010 ish, uh, built up all these emerging markets. These are all just a product of unbridled cap, uh, credit in the world, mm-hmm. uh, but that had diminishing marginal returns. And then in 2008, when it blew up, now they have to post collateral. So what it, what is uh, the best collateral for these is U.S. government treasuries. And that is why there is, I, I consider treasuries money right now. Yeah, uh, like because, M1 probably. Yeah, well, yeah, they're cash equivalents. So maybe even M base Zero. money. Yeah, yeah, maybe even base money. But um, you have to, it's impossible to count how much money there is in the world because of all of these different, products that they have have different monetary attributes. Yeah. I mean, look, a, a treasury has different monetary attributes than a dollar in my wallet um, or a reserve held at the, the, the central bank has a different uh, monetary properties than a U.S. treasury held in a private bank. And so there's all these different ways to calculate it. What are the weights that you would use in good times versus bad times? Because if there is, um, you know, a kind of a financial crisis brewing, then people aren't going, your, your credit or your collateral might not be as good as other people's collateral. And so how do you count the money? Um, it's really impossible. And it's all due to being a credit-based system because there is no backing to these dollars out there. It's all just someone else's debt, right? Someone else's yeah. liability. Yep. So yeah, that's kind of sums up the Euro dollar system. Yeah. Which kind of comes back to you know, why is the Fed tightening? Well, because there are so many dollars out there. And with these like Devosian policies of like build back better bills, where it's like five, six trillion dollars and they front load most of it in like the first year and a half or so, that is going to destroy the credibility of a treasury. And so, again, this is why I come back to like you've got Team Davos versus Team Fed. And Team Fed, the reason why they're going to tighten is to be, hey, you know, we issue a lot of debt, but we want to be good on our promise. Like we're not going to, we're going to keep servicing the debt and probably keep rolling it over, but you know, yeah. we're going to keep it at to you know, a reasonable extent to where you, we're not going to just QE infinity ourselves into oblivion. Otherwise, as Greg Foss always say, says, uh, nations do default. And mm-hmm. that's where this whole devotion battle is where you got the EU trying to destroy their economy economically. Uh, I haven't followed up with it today, but um, Christine Lagarde has probably announced that they are actually going to start tightening and removing assets off their balance sheet. But still, they need to really try to weaken the American economy first and have that crumble and leave the European economy standing. Davos does. And, yeah. and the Fed tightening is the way to combat that. And so I think it's interesting. I don't know if you've followed... Uh, this thesis that uh, Tom's come up with, but really yeah. instilling SOFR, it really uh, um, officially this year, SOFR being this uh, secure overnight uh, funds rate, where now all of US based debt is indexed to American markets as opposed to LIBOR, which it was before. And I think LIBOR and the euro dollar kind of go hand in hand because the euro dollars. Mm-hmm interest rate are based on whatever the 18 banks that meet in London essentially decided is. And only one of those banks, JP Morgan is representing American interest. And so, you know, they were kind of the black sheep in that cabal, if you will. And I, I don't know, have you, have you heard about like the whole like LIBOR over SOFR kind of thing? And do you have any thoughts on it? 
Um, yeah, I've heard of it. Uh, I haven't really done a big study on it, but I agree. I think Sofer was a uh, a split with the city of London in a way, right? So the, yeah. this the big money interests over there in in London and the euro dollar system. Yeah, that is where it got started was in London, and that was the main headquarters for many many decades. I don't I don't know so much today whether you would count it as like the main the main headquarters of the euro dollar system, but um, I think it was in the past. And I I don't know. I'm I'm. I don't, I don't agree with the idea that QE is money printing and QT is tightening. So I think and, I would agree as well. So I don't like the fed raising rates. I don't think that first off, I don't think it matters Yeah, because that's not destroying the money. Yeah. And if they raise rates or even if they do QT or whatever, uh, the market, if the market goes against them, they can't literally move the market they can't literally raise interest rates if say the five-year rate is at two percent they can't raise the fed funds rate to 2.5 percent i mean they could but they would look stupid doing it and they would totally break the confidence that people have in this mythology of the federal reserve so uh, i think that the going forward what's going to happen is we're going we're sliding back into recession and i kind of look at the fed's um, monetary policy recently is less so political and more so of um, just saving face because the, the market was rebounding, uh, bonds were selling off, so they had room to tighten. And now they tightened um, and the inflation was going high and they're like, where's the Fed? Where's the Fed? They printed so much money. So then they had to come in and they're, they're coming. They, they have room to make this hawkish narrative because rates have gone, uh, yields have gone up so much. But once yields start falling again, uh, they're not going to be able to continue this this hawkish uh, talk, and they will they will pivot. Um, what, that, what, what, yeah, actually, no, finish up. Sorry. That no, I was done. Go for it. Why you mentioned that they'll maybe do a pause, and you know mm-hmm. they might not do QE, but again, maybe that pause is all they need. But why do you think that they won't yeah. keep tightening? Because I mean, just you know, I I believe in the thesis that this is do or die. You're right; they are saving face because they don't really have any other option, and so they don't give two shits what the markets do, because at the end of the day, they are preserving the money transmission mechanism that the Federal Reserve System wields over the rest of the world. And to maintain that, you have to strengthen the dollar, like markets be damned. Like, I know that sounds radical, but I mean, if there was any sense or possibility of a Paul Volcker 2.0, I think this is the extent that it has to go. You're never going to see like 20% Fed funds rate again. But I mean, I don't think that it has to be raised to 7% or like whatever, it will raise itself to whatever it needs to be. But I think that they're, they're just serious about not uh, holding up and like, you know, for the next Fed funds meeting, they'll just go like another 50 basis points, another 50 bips, another 50 bips until like they're, they're, they're set. And especially if the savings rate is at as low as it is, I think 4%. I mean, that's a sure sign that they don't show any signs of stopping what they're doing. Whereas where it was like, whether it was during COVID, like 8% or something. So up until savings rate actually doubles, they won't, they won't ease up on this. So maybe they'll keep doing this QT stuff until, you know, it, it'll suffice. And I feel like they can keep doing this because they have, <laughs> kind of going back to the reverse repo or just the, the basic principle that money moves to where it's treated best you're going to have capital flight out of Europe and everywhere else in the world. And maybe that substitutes the need for doing QE because you have all of this excess liquidity of dollars flooding back, being invested into America. So if that's the case, like why do you even need to do QE? You know, I know that was kind of a yeah. lot, but. Well, I mean, I think what you're missing is that there could be a credit collapse and that's going to stop them. Because think about in 2008, they said we were 24 hours from the entire financial system disappearing. And that was, that was true. 
um, because it's a credit-based system. And what happens when everyone defaults? There's no money left. Literally, there's no money left. And when um, the repo rumble happened and even in the Corona crash, there like US dollar treasuries were not posting as good collateral. You had to have like a four week treasury bill to have good collateral to access cash. So you mm-hmm. wouldn't default on things and you wouldn't you go as bankrupt. a bank. Yeah. As a bank. So the, this is a bank centered system. And if yeah. the banks are frozen, the fed must act. The fed cannot keep raising rates. If yeah. the, if the entire banking system is about to explode. So I think that, and how is the fed going to raise rates? Like if they are going to, like I said, if the five year, the, even the 10 year say is at two and a half, three percent and they want to raise to three and a half percent, the fed funds rate, how are they going to do that? They literally don't have the power to raise it past where the market is. And so they are and and in a in a situation where they are causing an economic crisis quote unquote causing an economic crisis <laughs> they interest rates will plunge or not interest rates but yields on treasuries will plunge because uh people are rushing into the safest instruments right and so they they're causing a situation right now where rates are going to plunge as they're trying to raise rates and soon and if they keep going like this, then there will be some sort of credit crisis, a credit right. collapse, and they must change. They so, will, so they will not let it go to zero. I, t- I guarantee you that. So they're trying to raise the Fed funds rate, but then you said rates will collapse, meaning that like the, the treasury like payout essentially. Yes. Right. Yes. So isn't that what they want? Because you want low yielding treasuries and high price bonds, because that is like a fiat maximalist tool for a store of value is what a bond is, right? So if that's the case and bonds increase in value, doesn't that actually increase the value of your collateral? I mean, yeah, you're increasing the value of the collateral, but it doesn't mean that people will take that collateral. So in in a situation where- So who's people in this case? Oh, sorry, um, banks. So this is like money market funds or people that are at the repo window. They're trying to access overnight capital. they, they will look at the person that's wanting to borrow and they will say, well, I don't know if I can take that government bond, even though it's risk-free, I don't know if I can take that 10-year and get the same price for it tomorrow. So I'm not going to accept that 10-year. I will accept only the four-week or maybe the two-month treasury note or sorry, treasury bill, because those I can somewhat be guaranteed that tomorrow they'll be worth the same as they are today. Right. So, but, they, but if, but if like, if te- rates on 10 year treasuries decrease, then that's what you want to have happen. And that's positive for anyone that holds collateral or, or bonds, because like, I mean, I guess that's, that's what happens when, when tightening occurs. Right. And so this is going to keep occurring if the fed funds rate is high, shouldn't it? Because if, if all that happens, that keeps happening, like continues, I guess I was redundant. I mean, this is a positive for anyone that holds U.S. collateral, isn't it? Because the value yeah. of that collateral increases because this all goes back to strengthening the dollar and the credibility of the United States. Well, right now, that's good. But at the end of the day, you have to have dollars to pay your debts, Yeah. right? You can't pay your debts with U.S. treasuries. You can... If you take that treasury into the repo market and turn it into dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Overnight. And you can access capital overnight. So you can take these cash equivalents, turn them into ca- uh, real cash and pay off your debts. But if it, in the system, if uh, that whole system is broken down, those, those treasuries actually go, go to zero. I mean, if you'd mark, mark them to market, I can't use them to access my um, cash so really, they're no good to me. I need to switch them over to four-week uh, treasuries or whatever. So yeah, it's good to a degree. We will see rates going down as the economic situation deteriorates. Rates the, as in on treasuries. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the, the open market rate on treasuries will decrease as, we, as the economic situation deteriorates. But when, when that uh, 
financial crisis happens and you have 24 hours to unfreeze the credit markets, you know, the Fed will pivot. The Fed will change what they're doing. They will come to the rescue. They won't let it actually absolutely collapse to zero. So do you think this can be offset with capital flight? Because as if the dollar like strengthens even more and the euro collapses, whatever money that people have in whatever country, that investment is going to move to the United States. So yeah. do you think that flood of new capital, foreign capital, would could possibly offset and make it so the Fed doesn't have to swoop in? Yes. I, I think the, the Fed will because that would pivot. that would basically save face of you, you we don't need to worry about this 24 hour crisis wouldn't it potentially yeah. yeah i think i think the fed will pause because the the market rate of treasuries will make it so they can't raise anymore and so once they pause then uh you know that will be a huge risk on event and there will be money flowing in from around the world into U.S. markets, U.S. dollar-denominated assets, stocks, all of that, because um, you know the it's a risk-on event. So that that's why I where I see the the capital flight into the U.S. is not because. I mean, it, how is it risk not, on? Shouldn't it be risk off? Because I mean, that capital is not going to go to risk-on assets. It's going to go to assets that the market actually demands and needs, right? If the Fed pauses, that is going to be an extremely dovish situation if the Fed pauses because they are so uberly hawkish right now. If they pause, that is the market is going to interpret that as, hey, the party's about to be back on. Right. Oh, yeah. And if you sentiment. Yeah. If you look at uh, this, this happened right in 2018 with Powell, too. So right when Powell came in into office or whatever you call it there for the Fed chairman, um, they were raising rates. And then in December, well, I think the, the, they started talking a little bit more dovish in October mm-hmm. and the, the, the markets actually bottomed in, I think, September, October and the stock market, it kept going up and everyone's like, well, how is the stock market going up? Because the Fed's raising rates, but the market knew something. The market knew that the Fed was going to be forced to pause, and they paused in January of 2019. And the rate, the markets just kept going up. The markets called it early, and they kept going up. Um, and then the Fed cut back in July of 2019, with the market still going up, the stock market still going up. So um, that's why I think the it's it's a risk on event. It's a dovish pivot for the fed and it's going to be like hey the party's back on and all that capital is going to come to the u.s now that's very bad for europe i agree with tom luongo uh, on this almost exactly about uh you know europe is going to have to break up there's going to be um probably internal wars within europe again uh, in the next 10 20 years there's going to be massive problems all around the world other than the United States. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a big US bull because of this, that where else is capital going to go other than the United States markets? So that's why I'm a big bull of the dollar and I'm a big bull of the US markets. This is your friendly reminder to rate, subscribe, review. They say the best things, they come in threes, like rate, subscribe, review. If you rate it five stars, we can raise the bar. Subscribe so you can stay in tune. And don't forget at the very end to leave a nice review. Something like I love you, Sue. Rate, subscribe, review, please. Thank you. Not your keys, not your coin. If you're in Bitcoin and you haven't heard this, you're hearing it now. The value proposition of Bitcoin is that you are your own bank. You take complete self-custody of this thing and you don't need to trust anyone but yourself. As Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm pretty sure that all you Bitcoiner dudes and ladies out there can put on 
your grown-up pants and take self-custody. Honestly, one of the best options is the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. Because it's just sleek and voluptuous and lovely. And it's user-friendly. And that's what we want out of Bitcoin. We want to be able to store Bitcoin, access it, use it in a way that a toddler can. And that's pretty much what you're getting from the Bitbox O2. You got your cold storage on a hardware device. And you can sleep soundly at night knowing that you're your own bank and no one else can come and steal your Bitcoin. And that's all possible with Ship Crypto's Bitbox O2. So if you want to put on your big boy and big girl pants and be a good Bitcoiner and actually own your money, as opposed to putting it on an exchange or a bank, let's just call them for what they are, a bank, where they're rehypothecating that Bitcoin. And again, this isn't your Bitcoin. If you put it on there, it's theirs. And so it's not your money they're losing, it's their money they're losing because they're trying to use that Bitcoin to make more money, take the spread, the VIG, if you will. And honestly, they go tits up because they're bad actors and they don't care about you and your wealth because when your Bitcoin's with them, it's no longer yours. So if you want to bypass all of that, Go to shiftcrypto.ch and snag yourself a Bitbox O2. Use the promo code Bitcoin made simple, all caps, no spaces for 5% off a Bitbox O2 from shiftcrypto.ch. Because self custody is self sovereignty. Get that Bitcoin in the right hands. Your hands. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm too, like I've, and, and even since learning about all this stuff in the past year, I'm much more bullish on even gold. Cause I think it, it's still just a, a realistic approach. Yeah. And even during the Trump administration, I've recently heard that they were considering like Russia's doing arguably, they have a commodity backed currency. Yeah. And if you throw in gold and possibly Bitcoin now with Lummis, you know, up mm-hmm. there on, on Capitol Hill, uh, now that you have, um, you know, the, these commodities and you have Russia, frankly, winning this war and doing so well, that yeah. for sure sends a clear signal to the United States. Like, hey, um, we don't need to have, have proxy wars anymore. But this is, again, this is financial war number two, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing this ebb and flow thing, fighting Europe uh, financially. But now, you know, Russia is making this look bad. So let's like take from the Russian playbook. We don't need to be make be like number one oil producer, but we can at least like take notes on you know having a currency backed, I mean a commodity backed, uh, you know treasury. And I think Bitcoin and gold have a, a great slingshot advantage to you know do that, and that would further strengthen the dollar and the United States credibility as well. Yeah, well you said a, a good thing there um, that. They are, they're making, what did you say? Making us look silly. Uh, Russia's making us look, or making us look bad. And I agree with that, but not, not exactly because the U S the U S could handle business. A lot of people think like, Oh, the U S is, you know, like this aging empire, it's a declining empire. And now Russia and China, they're, they're the ascendant empires and all this, but no, I mean, the, the U.S. has more firepower than any country. Uh, it's just really hard to win a war maybe on someone's border, like on Russia's border. So uh, it would be hard to do that. But the U.S. could handle business if we wanted to, if we wanted to. And so that but that's the main kicker is I think there's a, a loss of the public support for any sort of war like this. Yeah. There's a big shift happening in Especially the US. how we like embarrass ourselves when we pulled out of Afghanistan, I think. Yeah, there's a big shift in the US. And it's, I think it's been kind of bubbling up for uh, maybe 10, 10 years. But, well, maybe since the financial crisis. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the great financial crisis. I mean, crisis. like you're, you're ex-military too. So, I mean, you have a great perspective and take on this because you're there seeing it. Yeah. And I think that the US's heart and soul is non-interventionism. And that sounds funny for people because the U.S. has had all these proxy wars. They've been in Afghanistan and Iraq for 
going on two decades, right? Um, but it's really, if you look before World War II, yeah. the U.S. was non-interventionist. We came in right at the end of World War I, and then World War II, it took Pearl Harbor to get us in, yeah. right? It's, it's almost like they had to, maybe they tricked us to get in with a false flag. I don't know. But um, so <laughs> the it took a lot to get the U.S. into World War II. Uh, and it at, in our heart and soul, we are non-interventionists. I think that's coming back. So the U.S. is pulling back. Uh, the all of these other countries where the U.S. had overwatch kind of uh, on the international system, like NATO, the UN, the WTO, the WHO, all of these institutions are going to be losing relevance or going defunct pretty quickly. And, and that's very bad. I mean, it makes it makes NATO look silly, this Russia yeah. situation. It makes Europe look really silly. But I, I don't really buy into that. It, it makes the U.S. look all that silly. I, so, <laughs> it's embarrassing. So I, I just want to clarify when i yeah. said russia is making the united states look better i meant economically because if you're russia oh. you're sitting on all the commodities that the world depends on and so we, they make us look bad financially and credit worthiness like just you know grade f because they're like hey uh you want this pay us in rubles and so i think that sends a sure signal of some pointers that the united states can take and saying hey you want treasuries uh well they're backed by like gold and or bitcoin and i think yeah. this would be a great kick off to the real hash war because Russia has like the marginal cost of, you know, creating energy. Uh, they can, you're silly to think that they're not mining Bitcoin. Right. And so yeah. I think with the announcement a month or so ago, that Exxon's like looking into mining Bitcoin. I think that is just another uh, signal like, Hey, if we're serious about this, oh, you know, we don't need to be mess- messing around with proxy wars. I think that that's another part of the bifurcation between, you know, Washington and, uh, others up on the hill or whatever. Uh, I, I think it's it all comes back to like working on credit uh, worthiness and um, you know non-interventionism, as you say. And I think yeah, I, I think like the the whole thing that is it doesn't make NATO and all these institutions look good. I think I, I also subscribe to the Luongan thesis of that's part of the Davos plan is to get rid of NATO and all these institutions and create their Europe's own foreign policy that, and that's kind of um, with the European army and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a tangent, but yeah, uh, well, in some way it's, it's just kind of this serendipitous. Well, that's more of like a positive word adjective, but it's <laughs> just this kind of clumsy thing where they're doing all the wrong things and, and they're panicking Davos is and they're like, yeah. Oh, all well, these sanctions are making Russia stronger, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it's still, kind of embarrassing United States foreign policy and it's kind of getting them, them closer to their goals of disbanding NATO and creating their own European army, like uh, foreign policy sort of thing. So like, there's a lot of like nuance going on here, but I think ultimately what puts the United States in the best position is to again, focus solely on monetary aspect and making this like the safest place for capital to move to. Yeah. Domestic, domestic conditions. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the Russia situation points out the impotence of Davos. So, Dav- yeah. you know, everyone think maybe Davos wanted to get, they wanted to uh, use intimidation and fear to get what they wanted. And they've been doing that for a long time, actually, you know, to keep everybody in line with their goals, their ESG goals, their, their, um, 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 I guess, LBGTQ or whatever, all these other goals that they have. And, yeah. They so they've been trying to keep people in line and they've been using this intimidation tactics, but India is not buying it anymore. China's not buying it anymore. Nope. Russia is definitely not buying it. And Everybody that, is siding like with Russia, uh, like honestly. Yeah. We yeah. got India being the middleman for oil, and that's how Europe is getting their oil. Yeah, they're refining it and they're selling it to them. And and then you got Hungary on the other side, uh, trying to buy it from uh Russia and then like create some other like market and it just distorts like energy prices and it sends everything out of whack so it's kind of like this uh creative destruction within europe and it's all just a consequence of just the failure of davos and central planning yeah and what davos could could hold on to power if they had more runway in this credit-based system 
That's what yeah. I think. So we are coming to the end of which is why they are the proponents of MMT and CBDCs issued from yes. IMF and central banks and getting rid of the whole decentralized. Yes. I will say that because essentially that's what it is in America. It's a decentralized banking Federal Reserve system. And that is what separates the monetary power in America from the rest of the world because they control that power. And so that that credits that uh, like it's MMT com- communism that Davos is wanting. That's why I think they're like larger proponents for that, which is again, why I don't think the Fed will actually issue a, a CBDC. You have Leo Brainerd um, even come out today and there was an article going around from Coindesk, I think, but there was a meeting and we covered this on News Made Simple this morning. There was a meeting that uh, a bunch of credit unions and commercial banks got together and they sent a letter to, um, uh, I forget, uh, commissions on uh, trade, something, whatever. Yeah. Um, but essentially, like, this is like a dangerous thing. And I'll send you the link if you want. But like, this is dangerous for the Federal Reserve and 71% of the uh, money, private money that is created, like that's private money in the U.S. and that is the basis of the growth in this economy. When you have mm-hmm. a CBDC issue, that is completely destroyed. And so that's just another like prime example why you've got Team Fed and Team Davos butting heads here. Yeah. Um, so if you rewind, say, 20 years, there was still enough runway left in this debt system that they could have printed enough money to take on uh, this Russian situation in a, you know, a more effective way, but really. it's, it's just a sign of the times. And I believe that all of these things are kind of naturally occurring. You know, if somebody's coming to give you 0% interest on a loan and you can use it to expand your business, then you're going to take that. But um, if the, you know, after a while, the, debt burden gets too great and maybe you've taken out too many loans and you don't want to take out another loan because you just can't pay off everything. And so eventually you come to the end of this credit-based system. And that's where we're at now. I've, I think it's all natural. It, it, it's not like, I know Tom is, Tom Longo is big on like conspiracy of the Davos crowd and uh, you know, the, the evil people at the top in this cabal. But I, I really don't think that. I think that it's uh, people just following their own incentives and it's kind of a natural ebb and flow of society. Uh, we are, one yeah, of the things agree. I've been saying is uh, there's a pendulum swinging and it, the pendulum has gone towards the Marxist globalists and it's going to swing back again the other way. Uh, and we see this all around. So um, that's, I, I, I feel like my, my position, at least maybe I, I take it because it's optimistic and it keeps me from being depressed about all this, this stuff. But uh, I think it's, it's an optimistic view. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything that he kind of talks about, I think, I think it's one of the more optimistic approaches because it, really puts me in in the dumps because all people want to talk about on bitcoin twitter at least is just like doom porn and whether it's like cbdc or whatever um i feel like the whole like leftist approach davos has been taking is just blowing up in their face and so maybe they'll work towards more of a right leaning strategy whether that's like working with neocons or i don't know what really that looks like but uh I don't know. I think that could even blow up in their face because you have like more of like quote unquote red states just standing up against this stuff. Uh, like Florida, for example, that's a prime example. And then, you know, if DeSantis runs for in 2024 and he takes on someone like Tulsi Gabbard as like VP, it, it's just you have like two uh, people on the different sides of the, of the aisle, but coming together just out of like rationality and that no one's on board with this whole globalism thing that's going on so yeah, that's I, I think i mean people are standing up and like the truth is treason in the empire of lies and they are just working based on just naturally as you say their nash or their natural like rational incentives of what they want to do for themselves and their families and everybody in the nation wants to do the same thing and so like that is the like glimmer of optimism i have is just people and that's why i'm like really bullish on people and bitcoiners but uh um like bitcoin is going to be a major piece in this it's not going to be the only piece but it just with things like bitcoin and just like the the soundness of reality is kind of pulling people out of this this doom porn thing and making them actually stand up and doing everything they can to make things better and correct 
Yeah, um, it's funny that when Tom started talking about that uh, Tulsi Gabbard thing, I had just mentioned, I remember the first time I heard Tom say that, um, I had just talked to my father-in-law. I said, you know who would be a great running mate for <laughs> Don, Ron DeSantis is uh, Tulsi Gabbard because I would bridge the divide of these parties and it would be like an unstoppable duo. I totally agree with that. And um, they, they kind of symbolize a turning, uh, uh, the pendulum swinging back you know, uh, and towards nationalism, towards non-interventionism, towards populism. Yeah. And the way they demonized uh, Trump and the way they demonized like Orban uh, over there in Hungary and the way they demonize Putin, these are all populist leaders. Yeah. They are all anti-globalists. And that, that just, it's perfect, a perfect example. I mean, that, that should be super, super clear for people. Look, Trump and Putin, they're populist. That's what the globalists hate. And then the people should be like, oh man, yeah, that's right. That's why they, we're, we're told to cancel all of these Trump people, just like we're told to cancel Russia when Russia invades Ukraine. Um, it's the exact same playbook, just on maybe a different scale. So yeah, no, at the end of the day, it's not to actually to fall back in the quote unquote conspiracy, but it is a global cabal because that's all these people know because they're commies. And anything that goes against that agenda, they want to exterminate. And again, the natural incentive of people is, you know, I like at the at the way it scales out, it yields nationalism. But I think that is just the product of individuals and just in the proximity of like whatever piece of land on the globe that they live on. And that's kind of like what the default would be. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm still pretty positive about it. I mean, if I were in another place in this world, like maybe if I lived in uh, a third world country somewhere that was just starting to get its feet under it, uh, being an emerging market, I would be really worried about this situation because I think the emerging markets are going to be completely decimated by this. Um, yeah. Africa, I think, is going to be decimated. Uh, all the progress that was made over, let's say, the last 20 to 40 years or something in some of these developing markets, they are now, it's now going to be totally reversed within a matter of 10, probably. So the end of this dollar system and the end of globalism uh, is not going to be very friendly to most places in the world. Yeah. But since I am sitting here in Florida, um, I, I mean, I have to stay positive. So and well, I, I, I mean, talk, yeah, go ahead. I, this is, well, let's not forget for the listeners, this is a Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> and so we have Bitcoin. And I mean, that's yeah. a ripe opportunity for these third world countries, whatever. I mean, El Salvador is doing whatever El Salvador is doing. And we still don't know what, what that meeting with uh, Bukele and the other, you know, 40 uh, people representing like 40 other nations, what that's going to yield. So, I mean, people are wising up and again, people are, are standing up for whatever they believe in, whether it's their families or their country, you know, municipality, they're not on board with this globalism and they're not, and they are looking at Bitcoin as a, a safe haven to just skirt that. And so, yeah, but I think there's, there's a, a danger uh, of a few narratives in Bitcoin. Uh, I think there's a ooh. danger in the inflation narrative. Uh, and there's a danger in Bitcoin being like global money because it's almost like a globalist type of talking point. Yes, you know, the it Bitcoin is, is yeah. for the world and, and all this stuff. So, um, no, I think Bitcoin is a safe haven. It will benefit the same way the dollar will benefit uh, from the situations that we talked about earlier. So um, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. I'm also bullish on gold, like you said, but uh, I'm maybe gold will double where Bitcoin will go up 10 X. Yeah. So uh, that is, that's a big difference. Um, but I think we need to be careful about certain narratives in Bitcoin. And I've been trying to fight the good fight against the inflationists, uh, but that yeah, well, let, let's just get much. into that a little bit. Cause I mean, okay. we're, we're deflation maximalist. Actually, I renamed my Twitter. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Phil Gibson, uh, cry harder QT maximalist. So that's where I stand right now. <laughs> Yeah. So inflation, deflation, um, the end of a credit cycle, it always ends in deflation and that I, we can't escape that. 
it'll happen again. The, the only way you can kick it down the road is what the Fed has been doing with QE. And that is just like balance sheet magic. They can just kind of yeah. tweak the balance sheets, replace some of these bad assets with reserves, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they can tweak the balance sheets to extend this scheme a little bit longer. Roll it but, over. We're never going to actually pay it off. We're going to keep servicing it. People are going to get their payouts on their treasuries, whatever. Everything's Gucci, yeah. but we're never going to pay it back. Just roll it over, keep kicking the can. But the longer you do that, the lower growth you end up having because yeah. of that debt burden. The debt burden keeps picking up and there is more contagion in the system. There is more... Um, uh, just lack of confidence, the counterparty risk, all of this stuff. And so growth just keeps grinding down lower and lower and lower and until something breaks. And what I think is going to happen is people are going to, well, what I hope happens is that there is an alternative and that alternative is Bitcoin. So as the system continues to grind lower and people see, oh, this inflation scare that we've had, it was transitory actually. And we're, we're going back to zero inflation and zero growth. And that's, that's all we have to look forward to for our kids and our grandkids. And they're going to start shifting to a new system. So El Salvador, yes, is paving the way. And I think there will be more countries like that. Uh, but I think the U.S. will actually be one of the first uh, major countries to back the dollar by Bitcoin or at least maybe add Bitcoin to its reserves or something like that. Yes. So. Um, that, that's my take on the inflation deflation stuff. Yeah, I agree. Well, oh, cool, and man. the sorry, one more thing. The reason why it's uh, dangerous to talk about inflation so much and how Bitcoin is an inflation hedge is because we're not going to get inflation. And so if you- Why are aren't we going to get inflation, Ansel? Because the just what I just talked about, the diminishing margin returns on debt, you have to have uh, growth to get inflation in a debt-based system, and we're not going to get it. So you're just going to keep kicking the can down the road, grinding down lower and lower with diminishing marginal returns. And that's, mean, that's you all you real, have to look you, forward to. You mean real growth because the, the printing yeah. is destroying the actual value. What? Hmm. No. So yeah. Explain the d d diminishing marginal returns. Okay. So the first, say the first loan I get for, uh, if I'm a big company, right. And yeah. I'm, I'm expanding my business, I'll get a million dollar loan and I'll expand my business. Okay. Uh, the next million dollar loan I get, I will, it will go towards the next best option for me, right. The next best expansion. And then if I get the third million dollar loan, it'll go towards the next best expansion. So each time you take a loan, you're actually getting the next best thing. You're not getting as much growth from it. And so yeah, if, if yeah. you take that to the entire economy and you make it trillions of dollars, right? The, the, the 20, 20th trillion that you expand, yeah. you're going to get less growth than the first trillion. I guarantee you that. And so it, you just continue to go on and on and on. Um, you can kick the can down the road by changing the, these assets to reserves held at the Fed, but that doesn't help you grow. So it doesn't yeah. help you get back a dynamic economy. You have to liquidate that debt. The problem in a credit-based system is if you try to liquidate the debt, you actually destroy money because since money is debt, it's a credit-based system. You're destroying money at the same rate that you're trying to, you know, get this, uh, you destroy money by meaning when you say destroy money, that means you destroy the value of the money. Cause when you liquidate that debt, it just, there's more money out in the economy, but more no. money doesn't create more stuff. It just no, diminishes not the more value the of the economy. dollar. There's not more money in the economy. So when you print, when you uh, make a loan, that's that that money is poofed into existence, right? Right. Yeah. And when that when that uh, debt is defaulted on, that money disappears from existence. Right. Right. So there's not actually more money out there in in the economy. And I walked through this on one of my uh, uh, on a tweet thread when somebody asked me this because I was like, yeah, that I need to explain that more. So actually, the way it works is that. Um, and I'm doing is, like a chapter by chapter review of the creature from Jekyll Island too with okay. uh, a buddy on the podcast. So this is going to be a nice like uh, addition to this. So sorry, go for it. So um, the loan when you when you print um, when you make a loan, you print that money, but you also create an asset, right? You yeah. create the loan, and that loan is an asset for the bank, 
because they earn interest and that's how they keep keep yeah and they can they can sell that loan they can that that loan is an asset for that bank it's on their balance sheet as an asset and um when you don't repay that loan what happens to that asset the bank's balance sheet loses an asset so now they have fewer assets than liabilities. They need to yeah. call in some loans or make fewer loans in the future, right? So the way that this uh, money destruction mechanism works is simply through the balance sheet of the bank. If I, if I don't pay my debt or if I default on my loan, then, <clears throat> then uh, the bank has to not print as many liabilities because their asset side of the balance sheet has been uh, depreciated. So um, that's how it works. And there's going to be in good times, there's going to be more loans created and more money printed in bad times. There's going to be fewer loans created and there's going to be more defaults and that money is going to be extracted from the economy. And so it's a very elastic system. Um, but there's the fed, the QE, the government spending, none of that is actually money printing. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a lot. I feel like I was going to say something else here. But I think we've covered enough for people to, you know, chew on over the weekend. But uh, yeah, this was great, man. Um, it's it's very rare that you get someone to talk about this stuff. Uh, you are a Tom Luongo disciple, so you are right in this uh, wheelhouse. And yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. I like to, uh, I mean, we got your, uh, Misesians, Hoppians, Rothbardians, but like, what about the Luongans? You know, <laughs> like I want, yeah. I want his like his face on his like Twitter silhouetted and put on mugs. Yeah, I mean, you bring up the Mises and Rothbard. I, I, I'm one of their disciples too. I think that they. Oh yeah, it. everyone in Bitcoin probably is uh, to yeah. an extent if you've been in here long enough. But what they did, what I think their kind of blind spot was that it's 100% credit there is nothing to default to. And so if you let the credit collapse happen um, without kicking the can, you can actually go to zero. And that would be extremely bad for everyone, even if you own Bitcoin, because uh, even if you own gold and silver, it, it's, it's going to create a situation where bullets are more valuable than your Bitcoin or your bullion. Um, so you can't so just let it collapse. You're arguing Misesians are saying what exactly? They're saying that uh, they should let the credit cycle run its course and let everything uh, reset naturally. There should be no bailouts. There should be no right. QE from the Fed. There should be none of that stuff. Right. Um, but if that were the case, we would seriously go to Mad Max. And now that wouldn't be the case back when Mises was alive because we had gold. Gold actually backed the dollar. But now we don't have gold. We have nothing. Nothing backs the dollar. So in the old days, if, if everyone defaulted, you'd still have the dollars there or you still have, would have the gold there. But now if the dollar collapses and we have a credit collapse, there is nothing to back it. It will literally go to zero and we will have a Mad Max scenario. So th that's what I kind of think Mises and Rothbard at least didn't explain too well is what a, a pure credit-based system would look like. Um, but maybe that's the next generation of Austrians. They'll they'll yeah. explain. I that. mean, they're they're just Bitcoiners instead of the <laughs> yeah. Instead of the Mises Institute, we have the Nakamoto Institute. Shout out Bitsine and Pierre. Yep. But I mean, again, this is the first time that we're living with a digital commodity money. Not more can be made. You're gonna have layers. I'm in the camp that you're not just going to have Lightning Network, you're going to have other stuff on it. And markets are based on trust. So you will always have counterparty risk of some sort. But the Misesian principle still stands that things just like in the, um, the wildcat banking era, you had banks that were successful and you had other ones that bust. And those booms and busts send market signals and tell people what they should and should not do in their business practices and, and their money. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think Bitcoin really changes everything here. But other than that, Eli Anzel, this was awesome. I appreciate your, your time and just let people know where, where they can find you so they can go sign up to your newsletter too. And uh, Bitcoin Magazine can just have you be their feature uh, uh, yeah. thought expert. 
Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I do do the live stream of FedWatch on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. with uh, Bitcoin Magazine. I am the contrarian Bitcoiner kind of because these <laughs> ideas aren't shared out there with most Bitcoiners. Um, it's not just money printing people, like grow up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I do do a newsletter on Fridays through my website, BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Uh, it's been going for about four years now. Every Friday, uh, I put out about a 10-minute read or so of all like many of the important stories from different sectors in Bitcoin, from mining, price, uh, just my basic market commentary. I even slip in altcoins every now and then uh, and CBDC stuff. So um, yeah, that's at BitcoinAndMarkets.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Appreciate awesome. the opportunity to come on. Yeah, man. Love it, dude. Be safe. All right. See ya. There you have it, folks. Hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Ansel and I. It's always a joy to find someone who's kind of aligned in the same mindset you are and approach and like what's going on. And being in Bitcoin, you would assume that's kind of everybody, but there's nuance. Nuance is always the word of the day for my podcast episodes, it seems. But when it comes to whatever Tom Luongo preaches and digging deep into monetary policy, nuance here is key. Tightening versus not tightening. And it's just a breath of fresh air to find someone like Ansel that can riff on these ideas with me. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Enjoyed Enjoyed it. (laughs) And I enjoyed you guys tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. And as always, we enjoy our sponsors, Shift Crypto. Go to shiftcrypto.ch, get 5% off your Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. And take your keys off the goddamn exchange, please. All right. Well, as always, tune in next time for another episode of A Boy Named Sue right here on the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast Network. And as always, own your failure because God knows our so-called leaders do not. Peace out.